Hi, Gary Zacharias here with another podcast of The Apologist Bookshelf. When I walk around my neighborhood, I keep coming across this one house that has a sign in the front. Uh, it says, Black Lives Matter, Love is Love, Gay Rights or Civil Rights. Maybe you've seen something like that, two or three other statements there. Uh, pretty popular. And it's, it looks to me kind of like a secular creed, right? This is what we believe in. And so I was so glad that Rebecca McLaughlin has come out with a book that talks about these things. She calls it The Secular Creed. And uh, she's put out other books as well. I did, I think, a podcast maybe a couple of uh, weeks ago dealing with her book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. That came out in 2019. She also has 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity. That came out in 2021. And this book also came out in 2021. So Rebecca has a PhD from Cambridge and a theology degree as well. So uh, this is somebody who knows what she's talking about. I always like to see what other people say about her books too. And so here's uh, a person who says, she deftly examines the pernicious lies that have insidiously infiltrated our world, including the church, and gives a solid and biblical rebuttal to each lie. Uh, Somebody else said, the author points the way to a different kind of muscular Christianity that can flex the muscle of conviction and the muscle of compassion at the same time. So I thought that was a nice statement. So I'm going to take one of her chapters here. She deals with five statements that she sees as part of the secular creed. One is Black Lives Matter. The second is Love is Love. Three, the gay rights movement is the new civil rights movement. Women's rights are human rights. And transgender women are women. So I've read most of it. I haven't finished it completely. I thought I'd take the first chapter, Black Lives Matter, because we see that a lot. And I have heard it a lot as well. And so she starts off and she says, well, she has a quote from Yuval Noah Harari. And I thought this is a really powerful way to start. Uh, He's the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. He's an atheist. And I always think it's so powerful if you can get an atheist writing about things that uh, influence or have to do with Christianity and actually probably, without planning it, end up uh, supporting a Christian view. So here's what he says. The Americans got the idea of equality from Christianity, which argues that every person has a divinely created soul and that all souls are equal before God. However, if we do not believe in the Christian myths about God, creation, and souls, what does it mean? that all people are equal. So notice he doesn't buy into it. He calls it a Christian myth. But he, ad- he admits, he, ad- he says, the idea of equality comes from Christianity. Why? Because we all have a divinely created soul and all these souls are equal before God. However, it's kind of disappointing. Later on, he says, Homo sapiens has no natural rights, just as spiders, hyenas, and chimpanzees have no natural rights. So that's sad to see. But I mean, do you see what he's saying here? If Christianity is true, if there is a God, the Judeo-Christian God, then everybody's equal. She says, uh, it's kind of sad, that she says the dehumanizing ways in which black people were treated by white slaveholders were only really wrong if human beings are more than animals, if love across racial differences is right, and if right and wrong are universal. And she says the rational atheist can cling to none of these things. So you see what she's saying there, which I think is extremely powerful. 
An atheist can complain about right and wrong, but on what basis? Just his or her personal tastes? No, they, they believe that there are certain universals. But that only applies if there is a God. And so when you say it was wrong for people to treat blacks a certain way, then you're dealing actually on uh, Christian grounds there. She starts off uh, after that with kind of a, a quick view, overview of the Bible and how it relates to multiculturalism and especially minorities. And she said, it starts at the very beginning. She said, from the first, God wove different ethnicities into his covenant people. Well, how does that happen? Well, she talks about Joseph back in Genesis 41. He marries an Egyptian woman, and then they have two kids, Ephraim and Manasseh. And those, of course, are part of the tribes of Israel. And so, as uh, one author put it, African blood flows into Israel from the beginning as a fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then later on, what about Moses? Well, in Numbers 12, we find out he married a Cushite woman. That would be an Ethiopian. And she says, it's really unfortunate. Western art keeps showing God's covenant people as whites, but not true. They were from the Middle East and Africa. And then she moves ahead. Let's come to the time of Jesus. She says, look at Matthew's genealogy. It highlights non-Israelite women in his ancestry. Like who? Well, there's Rahab. She was a Canaanite prostitute who believed that Israelite's God was the true God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And then you got Ruth, who's a Moabite. There's a whole Old Testament book that has Ruth. And so she uh, is pointing out that in Matthew's retelling of Israel's history, you come across the fact that non-Israelites weren't just kind of on the fringe, on the edge. They were right into the royal bloodline. What about Jesus when he actually uh, spoke and talked and talked and uh, preached his message and interacted with people? What do you find? Well, Jesus is uh, scandalous. Why? He had a multi-ethnic message and uh, didn't help <laughs> his message at the beginning go over very big. Let me just take two stories that we have in here about uh, Jesus interacting with people and, and telling a story. For example, there's a lawyer that asks Jesus, how do I in inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? The lawyer says, well, you got to love the Lord your God and and your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer says, well, who's my neighbor? And obviously he's trying to figure out how far does this love thing have to go? You know, who's my neighbor? The guy five feet away, 50 feet, neighborhood or what? And then we get that famous story of the Good Samaritan. A uh, guy gets robbed and Jewish leader, leaders will just walk right past him. And it's a Samaritan who actually rescues the man. And so Jesus asks the lawyer, so which one is a neighbor to this a victim? It's kind of funny. The lawyer doesn't want to say, well, it was the Samaritan because they hated Samaritans. And so he says, well, the one who showed him mercy. Isn't that funny? He won't say it was the Samaritan. He didn't even want to utter that name. And so Jesus's audience, she points out, heard a story of love that went across racial and religious and political differences. And the moral hero of the story was the sworn enemy of the Jews. It's not just a call to love, right? That a lot of people say, isn't that nice? The Samaritan cared for the guy. But it's a call to love across racial and cultural and ideological barriers that people have built up. Love those that we were raised to hate, we might say. So it's a powerful story. And then there's another Samaritan that Jesus interacts with. This time, a uh, story, not, I mean, not a, a parable, but uh, interacting in life. 
He sits down by a well when the disciples go to get some food, and who shows up? A Samaritan woman. And he's discussing uh, things with this woman, but she's from that hated racial and religious group. And you know what's interesting? Uh, McLaughlin points out this is the large, longest private conversation he had with anyone in the Gospels. And she's also the first person in, God, in John's Gospel, though, where Jesus actually reveals who he is, the Messiah. So he's recruiting a person that the disciples would have been horrified to see. So now he makes this real, live Samaritan woman. She becomes a missionary. But then again, later on, Jesus praises the faith of a Roman centurion and a Syrophoenician woman. He heals ten lepers. The only one that comes back to thank him is, guess who? A Samaritan. After his resurrection, what does Jesus say? Go and make disciples of all nations. Well, then you get Pentecost. And what happens there? It says the apostles are preaching from, uh, to people from every nation under heaven. And that would include modern nations, uh, the areas where modern nations like Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Egypt, and Libya were from. And 3,000 people come to Christ. After that, we get the story in Acts 8 of Philip, who goes to an Ethiopian man who's highly educated. And this is interesting. Uh, this is a world of very little literacy, and this man is reading God's word. So this kind of throws out the whole idea of black people being morally or spiritually or intellectually inferior. Absolutely not. Uh, this man is uh, learned, and he welcomes Philip eagerly. And he is so happy he gets baptized immediately. So we don't just see an individual black Christian there. We see the actually kind of a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God's promises to foreigners who trust him are seen in great detail. What about the rest of the New Testament? Paul writes to the first Christians in Turkey, here there is no, not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That's Colossians 3. So he's speaking to racial and cultural divides there. And so I thought she made a really interesting point after that section. She says, when we refuse fellowship across racial and cultural differences, we're tearing Jesus's beautiful body apart. What a good way to put that. Well, she points out, moving to today, she said, and this is something I think is the heart of what she's talking about and, and the heart of our response when we see a sign like that, Black Lives Matter, Christianity is actually the largest and most diverse belief system in the world. Equally, uh, roughly equal numbers, she says, of Christians in Europe, North America, South America, and Africa, and a church growing like crazy in China. She says, the estimate is that maybe half of China's population by 2060 will be Christian. And it says 40% of the world by then, uh, the Christians of the world, could be living in sub-Saharan Africa. She says, I will likely live to see black Christians become the largest racial group within the global church. So this is not a white person's religion. She says, uh, white progressives who dismiss Christianity, ha, you, you Christians, you're terrible, because they associate with white racism, are not listening to black believers globally. So actually, they're not listening even to black people in America. They are almost 10 percentage points more likely than white peers to identify as Christians. They pull higher on every measure of Christian commitment, from things like going to church, to reading their Bibles, to core evangelical beliefs. 
These are blacks in this country. Uh, one Yale law professor said this, when you mock Christians, you're not mocking who you think you are. right? You're, it's, it's blacks who are the dominant force there. So then she has a section here of more details about black voices in the church. She says, most black churches in America are theologically evangelical. For example, she says, 85% of members of historically black churches see the Bible as the word of God. Now that's more than the mainline Christians. That's 62%. So let me give you those statistics one more time. 85% of members of historically black churches say the Bible is the Word of God, 62% of mainline Christians agree. 82% of Christians at these black churches believe in the reality of hell. The same percent as among self-identifying evangelicals. So the point is, she says, you've got to listen to these black voices. When you do, you're going to find that the black churches are predominantly gospel-centered and Bible-believing. And she says, it is unfortunate that there has been so much pain that um, white Christian racism has caused. She says it's awfully hard to face this. But she says, as we think about it, we'll realize that the loudest voices of protest against white Christian racism has, has come from where? Loudest voices have come from fellow Christians. Yes, it's true, and it's so terrible. Many white Christians were complicit in race-based slavery, but the movement to abolish slavery was a Christian innovation. So that's good to keep in mind. She also references civil rights heroes like Fannie Lou Hamer and, of course, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Their message was unrelentingly Christian. Now, they're celebrated by secular people, and that's great. They called out the sin of people that said they knew the Lord, but they weren't living in his ways. So what did they do? They didn't call for Christians to walk away from Christianity. They called for Americans to be more Christian. So black Americans are not, for the majority, they're not secular nor theologically liberal. And uh, she said, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we need to preach the gospel, pursue justice for the poor, oppressed, marginalized, and practice love across racial and cultural differences. And she comes back at the end of the chapter. She says uh, one more time, she said, you got people in the West they don't identify with any religion anymore, but they have all these beliefs about human equality. And uh, says, but if there's no God who created us in his image, then human equality is a myth. Remember what uh, Harari said? Humans don't have any natural rights, just like spiders, hyenas, and chimpanzees have no natural rights. Wow, nobody likes that. So she says an atheist can believe in human rights if she likes. She can campaign for racial justice, and she can go to soup kitchens and... She can help combat famine. She can give to charities that oppose sex trafficking. No problem with that. In fact, many uh, atheists are really kind, good, moral people. But she doesn't have any rational grounds for saying that everyone should believe in human rights or that racism is unquestionably wrong. She can't use words like should or must or ought. Because if you're in a world without God... It may be more than just, it's just your taste. It's just how you feel. She said, I may hate race-based slavery in the same sense that I hate olives, but that's just personal preference. But she says, you know, our moral beliefs, our basic moral beliefs about human equality came where? From Christianity. She quotes historian Tom Holland on that. So 
the belief that, for example, that every human life is valuable, that the oppressed and marginalized deserve justice, that we should love people whose race or culture or country is different from ours, that we should even love our enemies. Where'd that come from? Jesus, who died on the cross. Without Christianity, she points out, belief in human rights, in racial equality, in being responsible for the, if you're the powerful, being responsible toward the victimized, that's all due to Christianity. And so she ends by saying, ultimately, black lives matter, not because progressive people have told us so, but because the equal value of every human, regardless of race, walks off the pages of scripture with the sound of a trumpet. Isn't that great? She says Christians should work for justice for those who've been crushed and marginalized because Jesus came to bring good news and to set at liberty people who are oppressed. We should be the first to fight as Christians for racial justice and to pursue love across racial differences. Not because of political pressures or cultural pressures, because scripture tells us. And she says Black Lives Matter is at heart a Christian song, a Jesus song. I thought that was a good way to put it. So this is, uh, one more time, this is Rebecca McLaughlin. That was one chapter out of her book called The Secular Creed. It's a small book, not not difficult to get through, and it'll challenge some of our uh, friends' beliefs and maybe even challenge ourselves. So uh, it's a good book. Hope you have a chance to read it, and I appreciate you listening to this podcast, and let's do another one soon.